Beloved brothers and sisters, today we arrive at the closing scene in chapter 3 of the Garden of Eden. We've seen how God planted this garden in the east with his own hand and how he placed man there to keep it and to till it. We have watched intently as the Lord created for Adam a wife out of his own rib and brought her to the man there in that garden, in that paradise of God. We've eagerly looked into this garden to catch a glimpse of man living with his God in harmonious fellowship of husband and wife, working in love as a team to fulfill God's commandments. But now this afternoon, we must bid farewell to this garden, for we've also seen how man ruined the garden by listening to the serpent. We've also observed how man wanted to be wiser than God, but ended up hiding in fear from God. With tears in our eyes, we've watched how the husband blamed both his God and his wife for his own sin, how the wife blamed the serpent for her sin, and uh, and how all three were punished. We've seen the Lord enter the garden, not in pristine fellowship, but in judgment. And now at last we see today that man must exit the garden altogether. Sin changes everything. And yet God is greater than sin. I proclaim to you this word of God. For man's hope, the Lord drives him out of his presence. The Lord thus checks our depravity. And second, the Lord thus covers our shame. And the Lord thus preserves our home. So then, for man's hope, the Lord drives him out of his presence. And we see first, the Lord thus checks our depravity. It is indeed a very sad scene. The Garden of Eden was man's first home, and now he is forced to leave it. We should notice that man does not willingly go out on his own. He's not leaving the garden on his own free will to exercise dominion over other parts of God's creation, to till and cultivate land outside of it, no. In fact, we can say he was forcibly evicted from the garden by God himself. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden. And again, after he drove man out, the Lord said, as it were, pushed man out of paradise. Later in scripture, we read of the Lord Jesus forming a whip of cords and driving out the money changers in the temple. The same verb is used. Man was not given any time. There is a certain urgency and necessity about this action. Man was not going to stroll out on his own accord, but he was forced out. We might say, today that Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. Have you, ever, have you ever had to leave your home, brothers and sisters? I think of any of us who had to leave our first home, the one we grew up in, or perhaps our first home we had as a married couple, the home we raised our children in. That's not an easy, it's not that easy to leave, is it? And that difficulty is only compounded when you are forced to move against your will. It can break your heart to leave the home you love. Well, how much more then for Adam and Eve? For this home of theirs was not just a cozy corner of the world they could call their own. No, this was a garden, the one planted by the Lord. It was God's garden. 
Remember that this garden was like a giant arboretum or park filled with trees, shrubs, flowers, and meadows, with pathways and fields, with animals of every variety. It was of itself a most pleasant place to live. But what made it the best place on earth was that God himself lived there too. The Creator put man in this garden, paradise, as a place where he could walk and talk with them, a place where he could come in the cool of the day and speak with them as father to children. But now they were forced out. Now they were cut off from that regular fellowship, driven out from the presence of the Lord. What a terrible loss. To lose the physical environment of the Garden of Eden was one thing, and that was bad enough, but to lose the close contact with God, to no longer commune with Him face to face, as it were, that was a tragedy almost too much for man to bear. Man was more than evicted from Eden. He was excommunicated from that perfect fellowship with his Maker. And man deserved this, of course. Actually, we deserved much more, didn't we? We saw that this morning, how man's sin by rights earned him immediate and complete and eternal death. And yet God promised life. When man and wife should have been wiped out, the Lord preserved them under the curse and promised relief through a future son. And now here too, we get much less than we deserve. We are cast out of God's presence because of our sin, and yet there is mercy in his punishment as well. For look with me at the Lord's reasoning in verse 22. We read, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Now a lot of people question what the Lord means when he says, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Is the Lord agreeing with Satan who said to Eve that when you eat of the tree, when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil? Has man really become like God? It sounds at first like Satan was right about God protecting his own position as an all-knowing one. Satan had made the Lord out to be a stingy God who wanted to keep man from becoming like him. And now the Lord appears to protect his, own, his position again. For he says of man, he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and live forever. According to Satan's way of explaining things, this would be God's attempt to keep man at bay. Man now has the same knowledge as God, but the Lord won't allow him to live forever like God does. God will put a stop to that possibility right away and, jealousy, and jealously guard his own position, his own uniqueness. But we know this can't be the right explanation, for man did not become like God in every way, but only in one limited sense, knowing good and evil, God is perfect and holy. But man, as we have seen, became a depraved sinner with no good inside him anymore. He hates God and runs from him. He hates his neighbor and tries to preserve himself. Nor did man gain all the knowledge in the universe as God knows it. 
For then he would never have tried to make an apron of fig leaves to cover his shame. The truth is, man became like God in one restricted way. He knew good and evil, and yet even that knowledge is different from God's. God knows evil only from afar, only in others, only as disobedience in his creatures. There is no evil, no sin, no unrighteousness in God whatsoever. Man, on the other hand, knows evil from personal experience, from within. Because he has been made in God's image, man understands what good is. But having believed the lie of the devil, he now truly knows what evil is too. Because it lives with him and is part of him. We know sin because we are sinners. We know evil because we are evil. And then you can see God's purpose in banishing us from his presence, and particularly from the tree of life. The Lord understands that point again, or underlines that point again in verse 24. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The cherubim are special angels of the Lord that are always close to his presence. We find them in scripture woven into the curtains of the most holy place. They also kneel over the lid of the Ark of the Covenant where the cherubim are. There is God, there is God himself. They signal the Lord's special dwelling place. And notice that the cherubim are on guard duty here. And with them a flaming sword flashing back and forth. This is quite a picture. The text literally speaks of cherubim and the flaming sword, turning itself around and around. In other words, the sword is separate and distinct from the cherubim. It mentions these guards separately, cherubim and a sword. So the picture we get is something like this. Two angels, and then out in front of them a flaming sword, suspended in the air, flashing back and forth. The sword by itself is already a weapon of destruction, but now with unceasing fire flaming from it, and with an invisible hand wielding it back and forth, it speaks of swift, severe judgment from above. Symbols of the divine presence alongside a symbol of divine wrath would be enough to deter even the dullest of humans from passing that way. And the thing that was of such importance to guard and protect was access to the tree of life. In doing that, brothers and sisters, the Lord was not protecting his own turf from man, but he was protecting us from ourselves. For imagine if we had been allowed to eat from the tree of life. The Lord had, by his own word, attached the promise of life to the eating of that tree. Man had to make a choice which tree to eat from there in the middle of the garden. The one tree would lead to everlasting life and the other to everlasting death. Man was initially permitted to eat from the tree of life, but he chose to eat from the forbidden tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If he were now to eat from this tree of life, man would live forever. But, and here's a rub, not in harmony with God, but in disharmony. Man would live forever in his condition after he sinned. Man would live forever as a fallen creature, as a rebel 
a miserable, depraved being. The tree of life could only extend life, but it could not take away sin, and that's what we need so badly. Can you imagine, brothers and sisters, living forever as we presently are, in our sin and misery, in our brokenness, in our despair? No one looks kindly upon death of itself, but, beloved, the one thing worse than death is living this life forever, this life of strife, tension, of wickedness and evil, filled with broken hearts and broken dreams. The Lord did us a tremendous favor by cutting us off from the tree. It was his way of checking our depravity. Man will not live forever and is with his evil heart and perverted nature. The Lord cast us out of his presence, away from the tree of life, to give us hope for a new and better life, a better life where our shame is taken away. We come to the second point. The Lord covers our shame. For even before the Lord sent man out of the garden, he gave him a sign of hope. We read about that in verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. It's another one of those little details in the text we often pass over quickly. But brothers and sisters, ask yourself this question. Why did the Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, get into the tailoring business, so to speak? Why does God concern himself with the clothes of man? A lot of people today, even members of the church, don't think God is interested in our physical clothing. People will say things like, my outward appearance doesn't matter because God sees my heart. I wonder then what they think of this verse, as if God is only God of my insides and not my outsides, as if he is only interested in my soul and not my body. Didn't God create both, beloved? Didn't the creator put your soul into your body? How can anyone say what goes on in my body is of no concern to the Lord? I want to dwell on this a moment because for some it is a problem. Some, some people compartmentalize their religion into little boxes where God has say over a number of areas. But there's a few areas where God is kept out. God has a say over my heart, over what I believe, over my Sunday worship, over my family devotions, over my moral choices, over my choice of employment, but God has no say over what I purchase off the rack or what I put on in the mornings. That's just the exterior anyway. What I do in my heart or what I do with my heart is the Lord's concern, but how I clothe my body is strictly my own affair. Brothers and sisters, you can't put God into a box. You can't leave God out of your decisions when you're standing in the clothing store or when you're looking into the mirror. He is God of all of your life, and he is definitely concerned with outer clothing because your inner guilt is manifested in outer shame. Remember, Adam and Eve were naked, and they were ashamed. So ashamed were they, you recall, they immediately sewed fig leaves together and covered themselves Adam and Eve had the instinct to cover themselves up. But our world today denies sin and shame and has the instinct to uncover themselves. In a world that increasingly has no conscience anymore, that hardens itself over against the law of God, it is no wonder that nakedness, nudity, and the revealing of the flesh 
is becoming more in vogue, more permissible, more part of society. As little as 20 years ago, primetime television had standards for the level of nudity permitted. Shameless nakedness, and, uh, shameless nakedness was available then, only you had to pay for it. Now it's to the point where you can't watch any primetime TV anymore, even the non-cable version. Without regular meeting sexually explicit language and scenes, the world has cast off even the fig leaf, and that trend has found its way into the church. The Lord, in his mercy, went further and gave us animal skins to better cover up our shame. But some of, us, some of us are racing back to the fig leaf and exposing more of ourselves. Tell me, brothers and sisters, when you dress yourself, are you heading in the direction of the skimpy fig leaf or the God-honoring animal skin? Do you look to reveal your flesh and advertise your sexuality as if, as if you've got nothing to hide? Or do you remember your shame and honor your God by dressing modestly as he once dressed our first parents? For the fig leaves were not enough to hide their shame from God. The very moment the Lord entered into the garden, the man and his wife went running to hide behind the trees because those pathetic fig leaves, which they had stitched together, were see-through to the Creator. They could not escape from their guilt, from their shame, by their own human covering, or by their own human method of run and hide. But after the Lord has both punished them and promised deliverance, He takes time to properly cover their shame and clothe them honorably. Before he sends them out into the world, he first clothes them so they no longer have to run and hide from their God. And look at the clothing he chooses. Verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Garments of skin. The Lord did not take cotton from the cotton plant and spin two wonderful suits of clothing for them. He did not weave together bigger leaves or tall grass into splendid outfits, nor did the Lord even take the wool of the sheep and make two beautiful woolen garments. Instead, he took two animals, killed them, and clothed Adam and his wife with the skins. You see, brothers and sisters, the Lord shed blood in order to cover the shame of his children. Physical death, Full death did come into the garden that day, only not to Adam and Eve, as it should have, but to two animals who died in their place. And that is what really takes away man's shame. That is what allows man to continue living on earth without running and hiding from God every time he would approach. They were covered by the blood that is what gave Adam and Eve tremendous hope for that, for that shedding of blood that the sacrifice of life spoke them, to them of another great sacrifice that would come in the future. That of the great seed of the woman, he would one day come and shed not the blood of animals, but his own blood in order to cover man's shame. And is that not exactly what he did, brothers and sisters? The Lord Jesus let himself be sacrificed in our place. He let our, he let our punishment fall on his head so that all our guilt could be taken away. He let himself be put to shame too. Did you know 
that the Lord Jesus was without clothing as he hung on the cross. He let the soldiers gamble for his clothing at the foot of the cross while he hung in all humiliation with all his shame exposed. He did that so that you and I could be clothed with white robes of his righteousness. He let himself be uncovered so that we might always be covered in the sight of God. When you dress yourself in the morning, remember how Christ let himself be stripped bare for your sake. Your shame has been covered by his blood. Will you now expose your shame again by revealing your flesh for all to see? Let your outward clothing reflect your inner covering from above. And with that divine clothing, we may look forward to our return home into God's presence so now we see in the third place, the Lord preserves our home. For there is something else marvelous about our text. Paradise is not destroyed. It would have been a simple matter for the Lord to burn up at least the Garden of Eden, to send fire from heaven and consume what had been that place where God met with man. He certainly could have at least cut down the tree of life, and that would have solved the problem of man not eating from it in his depravity. Man had ruined paradise. Man had brought the seed of destruction into the world. And yet, though God blocks the way to the tree of life, he does not remove the tree. Man can't get into the Garden of Eden, but he can still see it. And that brings a strengthening of hope. For think about that, beloved. Adam and Eve were driven east of the garden, but not entirely away from the garden. In chapter 4, Cain will be driven away altogether from that place called Eden. So it follows that Adam and Eve were still living in Eden at that time. When they were banished from the garden, they could, and they did live adjacent to it, in Eden. Every day they saw their old home. Every day they saw the cherubim standing guard and blocking their way. And they shivered at the sight of that flaming sword. But nevertheless, every day they saw the way things used to be. The Lord preserved the garden as a testimony to them that though for, for now the way is blocked, yet the tree of life still exists. The source of life established by God is not destroyed. The message is, one day it will be reopened and God's people will be given access again to that tree. The way to the tree of life was obstructed by a flaming sword and two cherubim. Anyone who passed that way would die. But there was one who was willing to pass that way. Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus, traveled that road that led to the confrontation with God's wrath. He willingly gave his life to the flaming sword in order to put to rest the fierce anger of his father, he willingly laid down his life on the tree of cursing in order to clear for us the way to the tree of life, to bring God's people into the company of the cherubim and seraphim around the throne of God to sing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, that way is open now for you and for me and for all who repent and believe. That was Christ's promise to his church at Ephesus. That's his promise to his church here today. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to the eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 
Jesus unbars the way. Paradise has not been lost. It's just being preserved. And the tree of life is not destroyed. It's waiting for us. Let's go there to the new paradise of God, our new home. The Lord Jesus once said, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. The Father no longer has a garden but a house, even a city for us to dwell in. The Son is home with the Father now and has a place there for all his chosen ones. And one day all who put their trust in him will go there too, home with our Father, home with our brother, home with our Lord. That is hope, a certain hope, an unshakable hope, a hope which softens every sorrow. Amen.